decades now in Canada, there has been a bipartisan pro-immigration consensus. But in recent weeks, we have watched that consensus fall apart. My guest on today's program has been covering this development in his columns for the Globe and Mail, and he argues that it was the Liberal government that broke the consensus and that it must be the Liberal government who restores it. Tony Keller is a veteran Canadian journalist and a columnist for the Globe and Mail. Tony Keller is my guest today on Lean Out. Tony, welcome to Lean Out. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the program today at what is turning out to be a pivotal moment in Canada for the immigration conversation. You've written on the subject in the past in both this country and elsewhere. I'm I'm thinking of a memorable piece you wrote for The Atlantic. Today, I want to talk about two of your recent columns in the Global Mail, and we will get to that. But first, for our listeners outside of Canada, can you start by giving us just a brief explainer on what the historic Canadian context has been for immigration. You write, Canada used to be a model for the world. What did that look like? Yeah, so Canada and the U.S. have similar immigration histories, similar immigration systems, but with some really interesting differences. So the similarity is both Canada and the U.S. are countries whose populations were historically built on immigration with fairly large immigration inflows in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And then a very big change, both countries in the early 20th century really limited immigration all the way from basically the end of the First World War all the way up to the 1960s. And then in the early 1960s, both Canada and the U.S. liberalized their immigration systems and allowed much more immigration and immigration of people of all races. Because prior to the 1960s, both Canada and the U.S. had systems to kind of really limit who got to come to the country, not just in numbers, but in terms of race. So in the 60s, both countries liberalized. And Canada does, I'd say, a better job of how it liberalized the system. The Canadian system was built to focus on recruiting people with skills and education. We didn't always do this perfectly, but that was kind of the idea of the system. There'd be some family reunification, there'd be some refugees, and there'd be a big core that was about economic immigrants. And we also did a really good job of controlling the border, meaning Canada invited a lot of people in. And for a long period, we had a higher legal immigration rate than the United States. But at the same time, unlike the United States, we didn't really have very many people who just came to Canada uh, one way or the other, showed up and stayed. That was not a debate at all in Canada. So that's kind of the context leading all the way up to, let's say, the early to mid 2010s. And then in Canada, what happens is two new streams of immigration start to grow in the 2010s. Temporary foreign workers and visa students. And those two streams have really exploded since the Trudeau government came into office in 2015. They were increasing quickly and they've just kept on increasing. At the same time, the Trudeau government has also raised Canada's official regular immigration targets, which were about a quarter of a million in 2015 and are now close to half a million people a year. And that's a lot. You know, the Canadian population is about one ninth that of the United States. So the U.S. has in recent years had about a million legal immigrants a year. Take those Canadian numbers. And Canada was in the past about two to two and a half times the U.S. level. And we're now looking at, you know, sort of three or four times the U.S. level in legal immigration. And then on top of that, we've layered a temporary, I use that word advisedly, quote unquote, temporary immigration system for students 
and temporary foreign workers that is even larger than the official immigration system. So the result is in 2022, we had more than a million people come into Canada. So again, in US terms, that would be 9 million people arriving in the United States or about nine times the level of official immigration. And in 2023, we had somewhere north of that. And in fact, in the most recent quarter for which we have data, the number was over 400,000, which would suggest you could be as much as 1.6 million for a full calendar year. So we have just seen an incredibly rapid run-up. So to summarize, Canada was a fairly high immigration country relative to other developed countries with pretty good border control. And we have now turned into a much higher immigration country and we have some problems with border control and get into sort of more of that a bit later. And in your column that's just out today, you write that Canada's unique decades-old pro-immigration consensus has been broken. And, you know, it's interesting that our immigration minister has basically come out and said that the system has gotten out of control. As you've gone through some of the data, I think it's also worth noting, as you have, that the number of temporary residents in the country is up more than 1,000% since the year 2000. This is exacerbating the housing crisis. It's putting pressure on our healthcare system. But as you point out in your previous column, the National Bank of Canada economists have also concluded that we are in a population trap. Walk us through what that is and what it might mean for Canada. Yeah, so we have grown our population so quickly in just the last couple of years that we can't really keep up because every person who comes into the country obviously needs somewhere to live. They need social services. There are kids who have to go to school, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very easy to raise the population quickly, whether you're Canada or the United States, because there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who would like to come to a country like Canada, a country like the United States, to all of the major Western European countries. So in a weird way, that's the easy thing. Like raising your population is easy. Raising it in a way where the economy and its social services keep pace, that's a lot more challenging. I mean, it takes years to permit and build a new house, a new condo, a new apartment building. It takes a long time to train doctors or to hire new doctors or to build new facilities, build new hospitals, build new public transit. So we've ended up in this odd position where over the last couple of years, the Canadian economy has continued to grow. So if you just look at the number, gross domestic product, the Canadian economy is actually doing pretty well in the G7. We're growing almost as fast as the United States. But our population for the last couple of years has been growing so much faster than the economy. And so we're in this, that is where some economists have said, hang on a second, we're in a kind of population trap where we can't invest quickly enough and businesses can't invest quickly enough. Here's a way to think of it. Imagine you have a business that digs ditches and you have five shovels and you have five employees, but tomorrow you have seven employees, but you still only have five shovels. Well, sort of the per employee productivity level is actually going to decline because you don't have enough capital, equipment, technology to raise the productivity level or even keep it steady. So in the long run, that is solvable. We can find ways to encourage more foreign investment. We can find ways to have Canadians save more. There are all sorts of things we can do. We can build more houses, but those are very long-term solutions and they're very challenging. Like Canada's had a problem of insufficient business investment for a long time and we're layering on top of that more and more and more employees. So yeah, at least in the short term and maybe in more than the short term, we have created a recipe for declining 
Canadian productivity, somewhat lower living standards due to somewhat declining gross domestic product per capita, which is not ideal. Like that's not what our immigration system is supposed to be doing. That's the opposite of what immigration is supposed to be doing. Now, your colleague, Andrew Coyne, who I've interviewed for my Substack in the past, he takes a different view on this issue. He says the country is having one of its periodic panics about immigration and that if per capita growth has been lagging, all that the rapid population growth has done is to make the cost of bad investment and housing policies more explicit. Slowing immigration, he writes, is a Band-Aid response. What do you make of that argument? So I would say he's partly right and mostly wrong. So here's where he's partly right. There's no sort of speed limit on the amount of investment a country can make in its infrastructure. There's no speed limit on the amount of investment businesses can make in capital and equipment and improving their productivity. So those things, it's true, those are variables that can be changed. What I will say, though, is those are hard to change. Those are difficult. Those are challenging. And if raising Canadian productivity and getting Canadian labor output up to the level of the United States was easy, we would have already done it. We have been struggling since the 1970s to try to be as productive per hour of work as the United States. Canada is a highly developed country where we do lots of things really well, but we've always had this gap with the U.S. And there have been times when we've narrowed it, and it seemed to be narrowed all the way up into the 90s and the early 2000s. And then there are times when it's been getting wider, and it's been getting wider for really the last generation. And we struggle to understand exactly why, and we struggle to understand what policies can change that. So in theory, that can all be changed. In practice, it's really, really, really hard to do. And if you layer on top of that, bringing in over a million people a year abruptly and into the labor force, a fairly high number of whom are not high-skill workers, but actually low-skill, low-wage workers, it becomes really difficult to resolve the labor productivity problem and as well the housing problem. I mean, he's also right that the housing problem can be resolved. Canada's housing shortage and extremely high cost of housing, particularly rental housing, He's right that that can be solved in the long term. But, you know, people who need an apartment in Toronto for less than $2,000 a month, it's not really very helpful to tell them, listen, we can probably fix this by 2028, 2029, 2032. That doesn't really help them very much. And he's also, if I can say one last thing, he's treating high immigration as the thing we can't change and every other policy in the country as the thing that we have to change, which is weird. Because actually, the one thing we've changed is the immigration level. The other things were constant and fixed. We've changed one thing, and we're now going to have to change all these other policies as a result. And at the moment, again, the way we have designed immigration or not designed it over the last couple of years, I think has had more negatives than positives. And I think the evidence is fairly clear. It has, at least in the short term, had more negatives than positives. We can design an immigration system that will have more positives than negatives. And I think our previous system had more positives than negatives, but that's not where we are right now. I mean, it is interesting the moment that we are in right this particular time. The Globe's editorial board has come out saying that our immigration system is broken. We are seeing that sentiment reflected in the polls. Now, in your most recent 
Globe column, argue that the liberals must be the ones to fix this problem. And you outlined some steps that the government could and should take. And we don't have a ton of time today. So I want to focus on just one, getting back to what you referenced just a moment ago is the high skilled versus low skilled. We could, as you suggest in your column, restrict temporary foreign workers to high end jobs. You write, recruiting a foreign dentist or computer engineer or skilled construction worker, go for it. Depressing the wages of the poorest Canadians by recruiting overseas fast food clerks, sorry, no. Can you unpack that a little more for us? Yeah. So basically what Canada has done entirely by accident is replicate the parts of the American immigration system that don't work so well. So historically, again, come back to where I started. Historically, Canada has had a high level of legal immigration and a very low level of illegal immigration. And for what it's worth, the United States has had a long period of the opposite, a long period of people coming, crossing the border, remaining in the United States, generally doing low wage work and kind of working in the black market under the table and a large group cohort of that and a not particularly large cohort of legal immigrants. So what we've done with this temporary foreign worker program is we've allowed business, temporary foreign worker program and the student visa program, which has basically become a system for bringing in people to do low wage work. We've basically said what our economy needs is hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are going to work minimum wage jobs. And our previous immigration system said what we really need is a more limited number of people with really high skills who can raise gross domestic product per capita. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. If your goal is to raise the wealth of the average Canadian, if your goal is to raise gross domestic product and raise gross domestic product per capita, meaning not just grow the economic pie, but grow the size of each slice of the pie. If that's what you're trying to do, and that is what we're trying to do, then you should be focusing on high income, high education people who will in fact be more educated and earn higher incomes than the average Canadian. Instead, what we've done over the last few years is we've altered the system. So it's very focused on bringing in people who are going to earn less than the average Canadian and who are going to work low wage jobs. And all of what that's doing is, by the way, it's depressing wages at the bottom end of the income scale. So I'd be very happy if we were depressing doctor's wages by bringing in 10,000 foreign doctors. Instead, what we're doing is we're bringing in hundreds of thousands of people to work stacking grocery store shelves, flipping burgers, delivering Uber Eats, and that's depressing wages at the bottom of the scale. That's really not what we should be doing. And that is part of the reason that we're seeing GDP per capita fall rather than what we want it to do, which is rise. And you point out that fixing this problem would mean that the Liberals would lose a wedge issue for the next election. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the Canadian immigration consensus would sound kind of weird to most Americans because basically we've had Liberals and Conservatives alike agreeing on the immigration system. There hasn't been a fight in which there's been one party demanding that there be a wall at the border or we cut off immigration or we stop immigration. There just hasn't been any of that. And at the same time, there hasn't been a party saying we need open borders or no one is illegal or anything like that. So we have kind of had this middle of the road consensus and that is falling apart. But I would say it's the liberals who have made it fall apart. The Conservative Party of Canada, they're the opposition party, and they've been judicious in not saying anything about immigration for the last couple of years. They try to utterly avoid 
the issue. So I would say that the party that has pushed things to the breaking point is the one that has to bring it to rein it back in, restore the consensus and get us to a point where we don't have to have an argument about immigration that is a polarized left-right argument where you have people on the left saying we need open borders and we have people on the right saying we need a wall at the border. We need to have a immigration policy and an immigration discussion that's in the middle of those two. And what I'm worried is that is going to become impossible. I'm very scared that that's going to become difficult because it's just too easy for people on the left to say, if you're criticizing anything about the immigration system, you're a racist. And that's not at all what should be happening. And that's not at all what this discussion should be about. Yeah. And I do want to come back to that in a moment, but um, I want to talk to about how we got here, because I wonder if part of it is that any criticism of immigration has been something of a taboo topic in mainstream media until quite recently. And just now you're seeing sort of a lot of articles coming out all at once. Aaron Woodrick from the McDonald Laurier Institute just wrote a piece in the hub saying it was time to have a grown-up conversation on this issue. When the Canadian academic Eric Kaufman was recently on this program, he made two points that I'd like to sort of raise in the context of how we've been talking about immigration. The first was that the immigration debate is often cast as pro versus con, open versus closed, whereas we should instead be talking about faster versus slower and then negotiating from there. And he says that that conversation, to return to your original point, is hard to have because it has been transformed into a kind of heightened moral issue with the tripwire of allegations of racism. Talk to me about how that framing has kind of limited the debate thus far. Yeah, I think he's right. And I think he's put it well. Immigration, like a lot of issues, tends to get talked about in a binary manner. You're either for immigration or you're against immigration. But there's a rather a lot of space in between totally open borders and not one person being allowed to cross the border. And the reality is that, of course, immigration exists in between those two poles. And Canadian policy has always been between those two poles. And it's always been rational. And unless you believe in completely open borders, which is a philosophically coherent position, not one I happen to share because I think there'd be some consequences we wouldn't want, but at least it's philosophically coherent. You, your position is anybody who wants to cross the border can, anybody who wants to come to live in Canada can, anybody who wants to be Canadian citizen can, end of story. But unless you believe that, you have to have a system to decide who gets in. You have to have a system to decide, you know, any restaurant that has 120 seats has to decide who's going to get those seats. Any concert that has 50,000 tickets has to decide how do we sell the 50,000 tickets? Who gets to sit in the 50,000 seats? So unless you have unlimited borders, you have to have a discussion about who do we prioritize? How do we prioritize? How many do we prioritize? And that's not about something as simple as who's moral, who's immoral, who's racist, who's not racist. It's a discussion about practicalities and what's best for Canada and how do we best run this to benefit all Canadians, keep things running smoothly, et cetera, et cetera. But it's hard to have that conversation in a world where lots of people want to sort of just, you know, go on Twitter and say, you're a monster. No, you're a monster. Another point that Eric Kaufman raised is that you have to also be able to talk about discomfort with rapid cultural change and the need for social cohesion and a national identity. Otherwise, he says, the anger comes out in other ways. I, I have to admit, I feel a bit wary about that 
kind of cultural friction conversation. I liked the old consensus, the multicultural pluralistic ethos. I feel personally invested in it in terms of my family and friend circle. But this cultural change thing it piece is getting raised over and over. Do you think it's possible for us to have a calm, rational conversation about rapid cultural change and about national identity without veering into the kind of ugly nationalism and nativism that, for example, the lines Jen Gerson warned about in her column this week? So to be honest, that's the kind of conversation I'm trying to avoid. So we can discuss that as a sociological fact in a university seminar. I just don't really want that to become the political conversation because that gets us away from practicalities and into the realm of feelings. It gets us away from a practical sort of mathematical arithmetic question that we can all have a rational discussion about, which is how do we benefit the Canadian economy to a question about, do you feel uncomfortable with all these people coming here. Well, I do. Well, I don't. Well, I do. Well, I don't. That is, and right away, now we're into you're a racist. No, you know, I'm not a racist. You're a lunatic from the left. And I'd like to have us avoid getting into that. And I'd like us to remain in a conversation that is about some objective criteria that we can all attempt to get non-emotional about. Now, I'm not sure that's going to be able to happen. That is not where the conversation is in the United States. And I fear that we may have already gone far enough that it's not really possible for the left or the right to have a sane conversation. For what it's worth in Canada, I would much more blame the center left at this point for having broken down the consensus, but we'll see. And so that's the reason I'm saying, to come back to an earlier question, that's the reason I'm saying I really want the liberals the Liberal Party of Canada, to fix this. I want them to change course. I want them to be Nixon going to China because that restores the consensus. That is them having gone out on the fringe and moving back to the centre. And if they don't do that, I'm worried that the fringes get strengthened on both sides and we get into an unfortunate dynamic. That's well said. I, I share those worries. I want to close by touching on a theme of one of your columns from March of last year, actually, and that is decline. As you can see in the polls right now, Canadians believe that Canada is heading in the wrong direction. A recent abacus poll noted that those who think the country is, is headed in the right direction is down three points since December and close to the lowest point we have ever measured. You can see why now zooming out from immigration into the broader picture, the cost of living is high, housing is, is scarce, the opioid crisis is raging. And as you've just referenced, our politics are increasingly polarized. You have written that Canada has a long list of things that though they may not be fully broken or less than optimal, there's a dearth of competency and seriousness about tackling this, extending across political parties and through governments. Looking at the big picture, just to close today, where do we go from here? How does Canada get more serious about tackling its pressing problems? I wish I had an easy answer for that. I fear that I don't. I fear that I have some ability to identify the sources of the problem, and I'm not exactly sure how to change those sources. I mean, I think we have a growing level of unseriousness in our politics, and it's not just the Trudeau government. I would extend it to a number of provincial governments, and I would extend it to the opposition Conservative Party. There's a lot of sort of performative policymaking. There's a lot of posing. But the truth is, like, governing is really hard. You know, governing is difficult. Running a business is difficult and running a government and executing policy is like that times a thousand. 
it is exceedingly difficult to run to to have a well-run healthcare system. It's not as simple as saying private healthcare is bad or private healthcare is the solution that'll fix it all. If we just privatize it, that'll fix it all. Neither one of those is they're the very first step of a thousand step journey. And I think that's my concern about what's happened to Canadian government. It's happened at the federal level. It's happened in certain provinces. There's a lot of, we can issue a press release about our moral position on this, but then you have to execute. The execution is what matters. And we have had some serious problems of execution and that's what it comes down to. And again, you know, the motto is peace, order, and good government. And we have not been doing such a great job of all three of those in recent years. We should be the world leader in all of those things. And we kind of were, and we kind of have fallen a little bit down the league tables. Well, it's going to be an interesting year for politics in Canada. Tony, I really appreciate your writing and your thinking on these matters. And thank you for making the time to come on the show today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Lean Out is hosted and produced by myself, Tara Henley. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. You can also support our work by reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. Oh, 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 oh